long version of the meaning of everything you can find in all 66 books, but there are cliff notes contained within. In fact, as we shall see shortly, there are some places throughout Scripture where we can find the answer magnificently contained within just a verse or two. I'm not worried about those of you who already know the meaning of everything. In fact, if you've been coming here for any length of time, I hope you know the meaning of everything. But you will only delight to hear it again. So let me say just a few things as introductory before we get to the text, okay? By Scripture, I am fully convinced that pride is humanity's greatest offense to a holy God. Any sin, of course, singular or many, deserves eternal punishment by an infinitely just and righteous God. Greed, deception, adultery, lust, murder, hate, these rightly deserve God's wrath. But pride stands at the summit of everything that does not have as its chief end the glory of God. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. At the top of the list is pride in the form of haughty eyes. Proverbs 16, 5, Everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 2, 11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2 verse 12 says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Which means he will be humiliated, he will be decreased, he will be lowered in rank as it were. Verse 17 says, The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 15, What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And Acts 12.23 tells us that an angel of the Lord struck Herod so that he was eaten with worms and died because when he received the applause of men... He did not give God the glory, but he kept it and took it for himself. In fact, all we have to do is read the account of Satan's fall. You can find the account in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. And we see that pride as the first sin has since spawned every other sin. Pride was the first sin. It is the greatest sin. Granted, Simply because it was the first sin doesn't necessarily mean that it is the greatest sin. Even as it is the progenitor of all sin doesn't mean it's the greatest sin. So why do I say? Because it replaces or ruins something that is intrinsically better. Something good, something pure, something greater. Hatred should always stand in the service of love. Here's what I mean. If you hate anything, it should be because it has usurped, it has taken the position of something that is intrinsically superior. 
So when I tell you that God hates something, he hates what he hates because it replaces or ruins something that is good. Are you with me so far? Okay? Pride, then, is the greatest sin because it works to replace the greatest good. Pride most directly violates the invincible aim for which God created everything. So get ready for it. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag right here in the introduction for you. The meaning of everything, the meaning for the existence of everything, God's own glory. God created everything to make himself look great. I'll show it to you in just a moment. That should have, if you're a human, that should have pricked you just a little bit, that God created everything to make himself look great. But give me at least the next 20 minutes or so to present my case to you, biblically and scripturally. But for now, let me say a little more clearly When I say that God created to make himself look great, you should not be thinking in any way that he is not as he appears. Does that make sense? So it's not as if he is not perfect and then he created everything to put his best foot forward, so to speak. And so we would be then fooled into thinking that he's the greatest. He is the highest and the greatest. That's not what has happened. Let me put it this way. God has brought everything into existence, all things, whether visible or invisible. And I'll thank my dad for helping me clarify this point here. Um, He did it as a way of revealing who and what he actually is. And as God's works directly relate to us, he did it so that we would, if if you remember anything, This morning, remember these three things. The reason why God created as it directly relates to us. He did it so that we would see his greatness. Okay? He did it so that we would savor his greatness. That we would enjoy it. And he did it so that we would declare his greatness. Okay? So, as it directly relates to us, God created so that we would see, savor, and declare or proclaim His greatness. So when I say that God made everything for his own glory, you can add on to that before you even end the sentence that our greatest good, that which is best, what is most satisfying to us, what is the joy of man's desiring, is my message this morning as a matter of direct application. I'm using it simply to set up, if you will, the meaning of everything. But... I've said enough, okay, Uh, I want to get to the last verse in the passage because it's glorious. You guys ready? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Would you make yourself look as you are to us, which is glorious. May the upshot of everything we do and say here be that your greatness is seen and savored and proclaimed And grant, God, that we would feel affections that correspond to your greatness and your worth. Amen. Okay, let's get started. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1 through 9. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to give you a little synopsis before we get to verses uh, 17 through 31. Um, just, just by way of giving you some context, okay? Um, Paul, in verse 1, what's he say? He says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So what he does is he sets forth his apostolic authority. Okay, there are some rascals there, the church of Corinthians, in fact, of all the churches that Paul planted, the Corinthian church was his most problematic, likely. Um, he had the most affection for them, as often um, that happens. But he's setting forth his apostolic authority um, because uh, if he doesn't have a God-given authority, if it wasn't God who's called him to be the um, apostle of this church, then whatever anybody else says has equal weight or equal value in their lives, which is what's happening, which is what Paul is about to get into. He's saying, listen to me, because I'm the one that has the mantle of God. These other guys are speaking foolishly. They don't know what they're talking about. So shut them out and turn on your ears to what I'm saying. So that's what he means by called by God. He's, he's saying, those guys are not called to be your apostle. I am. So then in verses 2 through 9, Paul graciously affirms the positions and the position of the Corinthian believers as objects of God's mercy and grace. In doing so, in doing so he's, clearly, he's clearly noting that their position is predicated on God's faithfulness and not their own. And you can see that in verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he does, graciously, he affirms them for eight verses before he lays it on the line. If you're a parent or if you, if you have children under your charge, um, take heed of this. You need to affirm before you bring the hammer down. If you read the letters to the churches in Revelation, the Lord is gracious in, in saying, hey, you're doing this well. You're doing all right here. But listen, I got this against you. Okay, so this is what Paul's doing. He's affirming their position in Christ, as God has called them. But then he's saying... I got I got I, I got to bring the paddle out here now. Okay, so this is what he's going to do. He's bringing the paddle out in verses 10 through 15. And it turns out that there are divisions in the church. As Paul outlines in verses 10 through 15, people are aligning, okay? We've already talked about how offensive pride is to God. So, he identifies it and then he proceeds to dismantle it. So, how does he dismantle it? He dismantles it this way, by depreciating all men and exalting and declaring the supremacy of God's glory in all things. Did you get that? So if you want to read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians and figure out what Paul is doing, he is depreciating men and exalting God. This is what he's doing. This is how he's going to combat the greatest sin. So we can begin in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would would not be made void. So Paul says, wait a minute. Look, let me remind you why the message seemed foolish and I seemed like some kind of blubbering nimwit. How, How is the cross of Christ made void? How is the message of the cross made null and void? He says... If in any way man is exalted, the message is void. So if man looks good, the message is void. doesn't work. 
That's a pretty big statement. <laughs> Got to be honest with you. Man is excluded from winning any medals in this race. In fact, there is no race for glory. God is the beginning. He is the end. He is the starting pistol. He is the finish line. He is the alpha and the omega. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Let me stop there. Here's what Paul says. How could I speak cleverly? The message itself appears utterly foolish. It'd be like putting baby gibberish on my application to Mensa. Okay? You guys know what Mensa is? Mensa is like the elite, the intelligent elite. There's actually a club. I don't know if it's actually worldwide or just um, the, uh, the hubris of the American culture, but all these people, I guess the cutoff is 140. Your IQ has got to be 140 to get into Mensa. You know, I took one of those um, online IQ um, thingy-dings, and um, it turns out, apparently according to that, that my IQ is 139. So I am just shy, Jack, of being a genius. And that's been actually a butt of many jokes for Daryl and I. Because no matter if I do something dumb, it's like, well, that's because you're, you're almost a genius. If I do something smart, of course, well, you're almost a genius. I'm a, I'm a point off. Nevertheless, sorry, we're off base there a little bit. I thought that was funny, though, that they have this cutoff, as I understand it. The message, he says, of the world and the message of God are totally antagonistic. Primarily because one message comes from a finite worldview and the other, obviously, from an infinite one. They may may as well be speaking totally different languages. And this is what I mean. From from a finite and sinful perspective, the way of God is like baby gibberish. That's what the world sees when they see the cross. You try getting a man dressed in a three-piece suit driving a Maserati, you drag him out of the car, you take him outside the city, and you say, here's God on a cross, bloody, dead, Jewish carpenter, kneel below. The message itself is foolishness to the wisdom of the world. The irony, of course, as Paul delineates shortly, is that all of man's best is, it's actually twisted. It's like, you know, dribble down our chins in front of God. Furthermore, he says, In verse 19, he says, it is written. For it is written. And this is an important phrase because what he's saying is, God had already determined before the foundations of the world that both the matter of salvation and the manner by which salvation was going to be communicated was to be adversarial to the exaltation of man. So he's saying, God is God. Who is going to keep God from doing what he has planned. For it is written. It was already written before the foundations of the world that this is going to be foolish. And you want me to defy God and speak cleverly and wax eloquently? How is that even possible if God had already determined the matter and the manner by which this was going to all be done? And it was going to be contrary to the wisdom of the world. So that's why that phrase is so important. For it is written. It was already determined that this was the way it was going to be. I couldn't have done it any other way, he says. So if you read further in verse 19 through 21, For it is written, and it's written in Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent I will frustrate. And he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Paul says, look, what's the deal? What is the deal with wanting to be associated with certain men, certain human beings? Neither these men, those men, or any other since the dawn of creation has come close to figuring out how man could be made right with God. In fact, no one is even interested in being made right with God. So Paul says, tell me, who can stand in the shadow of the cross and dispute it? Who is going to stand before a created God, crucified on the cross, and dispute that? Who is going to add to that? Romans 3.19 says that every mouth is closed and all the world is accountable to God. So Paul says, who's going to stand in the shadow of the cross and be a philosopher? Who's going to stand there with this bloody God and dispute it? All the wisdom all the machinations of man, all the schemes of natural religion and morality have never rescued a soul. They don't amount to spit at the foot of the cross. Has not God made foolish? Of course He has. World values, foolishness. But I see enough to see this, that it destroys the greatness of man And displays the greatness of God. That's what the cross of Christ does. It destroys the greatness of man. And it declares the greatness of our God. Verses 22 through 25. For indeed Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block. And to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then Paul uses some some risky language here because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says, let me give you a couple of examples. The Greeks, they they crave uh, displays of intelligence, and the Jews want amazing displays of power. One man says, show me something great with your mind. And another man says, show me something great with your body. But no one ever says, apart from the Spirit, show me God. Romans 3.11 says that there is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. So he closes with with this intriguing phrase about God's weaknesses being greater than man. It It is simply a way to say that God's ways are infinitely beyond the highest degree of human wisdom. And those works of God, which appear to superficial observers, weak and contemptible, they surpass all the efforts of human power. The means by which God has saved us are so wisely imagined, they are so energetically powerful, that they are beyond human scrutiny. They are beyond human 
comprehension. For consider your calling, verse 26, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that. Here's, here's where the rocket is about to take off. So that. I don't know, that's the NASB translation. Your, your translation should have some kind of equivalent to say, this is the reason, therefore, um, for, maybe that word is used, but in some way it should say, so that. All of this argumentation, and it's coming to a head, he begins to unfold the meaning of it all. So that he may nullify the things that are. That's the first one. He's going to nullify. Why all of this? So that he can nullify the things that are. The things that the world holds dear. All this coolness factor and hipness factor and all this keeping up with the Joneses. All the um, awards and all of the accolades. All of Paul makes one last argument. In essence, he's saying, you once, you once relished your positions as fools for Christ. You came to the cross of Christ as losers. Okay? That's what he's saying. Look at yourselves. You guys weren't, you guys, even in, by the worldly standards, you weren't noble or rich. You had no influence. You came to the cross of Christ as losers. Everyone does. The playing field The grade at the foot of the cross is completely flat. It's equal. Your status as winners now is not the result of anything you've done or anything that anyone else has done or said. God did not call you to salvation based on your worldly excellencies. Those things that hold worldly value have zero worth in the economy of God's kingdom. In fact, if anything, those things have negative value because they are subversive to the advancement of the kingdom of God, which is his rule and his reign and his glory. Paul, obviously, had never seen an episode of Oprah Winfrey, whatever her name is, Oprah. He'd never seen an episode of Dr. Phil where self-esteem Positive thinking are the new God. They are the means by which we can achieve self-worth and self-adulation. Instead of saying, you guys were great, he says, you guys were losers. That's contradictory to what this world is telling us. Is it not? And why? Well, Paul finishes all of this argumentation with what amounts to two jaw-dropping, two jaw-stopping statements. He's finished with the body blows. He's finished with the jabs, if you will. He's going to throw two haymakers here. He's going for the knockout. Verse 29. He states it first negatively. And he says, So that. Why? Why, Paul? Why all of this? Why are you telling us this? 
Why is the cross foolish to the world? Why did, what does all of this mean? Why are you telling us this? So that, so that no man may boast before God. I love the King James Version. It says, no flesh will glory before God. You want to know the reason for everything? Well, stated negatively, it's that so none of us can stand before God and tell Him how great we are. That's stated negatively. Stated positively, verse 31, so that, there it is again, so that, Paul, why? Why are you telling this? What does all this mean? Oh, yeah, it's so that, just as it is written, God had determined again, let him who boasts, boast. Instead, we will stand before God and we will confess that He is great, He is wonderful, He is glorious. That's the reason for it all. The meaning of everything. So that anyone who boasts, anyone who glories, glories in God. That's the meaning of everything. No amount of praise, no amount of worship, no amount of glory was meant to terminate on us. Okay? So, I'm not saying that we cannot praise one another. Oh, good job. Hey, that was a great sermon. Or, or that was, you know, love that. Love what you did here. I love the way that you treated this person. And then you, then you and your, your humble piety say, No! No, I won't have it! That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we cannot internalize that praise. We cannot internalize that glory. Someone praises you because you've done something great. They thank you. And then in your heart you say, God, that belongs to you. You can have it. Please take it. You gave me whatever I have. Nothing I have did not come from you. So that belongs to you. So that's what it means. We don't internalize that praise, the adulation, the worship does not terminate on us. It is to terminate on God. Now we have here an apparent problem. Okay. I'm going to turn to wiser men to help us make sense of it. The problem is, as John Piper sees it, not everyone hears God's command to praise Him as good news. That surprise anybody here? God sounds really vain to lots of people. And then he quotes a guy named Michael Prouse. He wrote in the London Financial Times in March of 2002 as an example. And here's what Prouse writes. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage but a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? 
In other words, the only incentive that Prowse can think of for God to demand praise from us is that he, God, has need, which is defect. But what if we have the need? And the need is to see infinite beauty and enjoy it so much that it spills over in authentic praise. What is good? And do we not call that love? C.S. Lewis, he struggled with the same thing. But I want you to hear, as we're coming to a close, how beautifully he describes his own discovering this truth. And here's what he writes, C.S. Lewis. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game or team, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most. While the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us what we delight to do. What indeed we can't help but doing about everything else we value. And then he says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Is that beautifully written? Praise is our joy's consummated conclusion. I'll use one more quote to close with this one from John Piper. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be complete until he gets it. He is seeking our praise because we won't be happy until we give it. Therefore, we are driven by two motives which turn out to be one. The glory of God and the good of man. They are one because praise to God is the consummation of pleasure in God. So the meaning of everything, so we don't get to stand before God, tell Him how great we are.
We get to stand before God, tell Him how great He is, 